Welcome parents and caregivers. This is The Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents, and I'm your host, Drew Nash, coming to you from One to One Pediatrics in Danville, California. This is episode 109, and we've put together a great show for you today. My guest is a pediatric dentist who will talk to us about dental issues relevant to infants, toddlers, and older children. We will talk about when your child should start seeing the dentist and what to expect at those first few visits. We will discuss what differentiates a pediatric dentist from a family dentist and discuss the role of sedation in modern pediatric dental practices. We'll also go into what to do as a parent if your child has an accident and suffers trauma to their teeth. So stay tuned for some great and informative talk about teeth. In addition, we'll have pediatric fun facts, as well as a new segment called Parenting Horror Stories. The Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents, is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcasting platforms. We're trying to get the word out and build our listener base. So if you're enjoying the show, tell your friends and workmates and anybody you know with kids who might be listening. I hope you'll follow us on whatever platform you use so you can be notified when each new episode becomes available. In addition, we're on Facebook at The Owner's Manual Podcast and Twitter at Podcast for Parents, where you can like us, post a comment, and even post a question to be answered on the show. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about, this is a great way to let us know. While we hope that listeners are able to learn and benefit from the content of the show, the information discussed on the owner's manual is not intended to diagnose or treat any specific individual or condition. There is no substitute for direct patient care from a trained clinician, so if you have concerns about your child, we recommend that you make an appointment with your child's primary care physician for an evaluation. Before we get to the main topic for the day, it's time for a new segment that I added to the show last week, Pediatric Fun Facts. Each week, I'll bring you an interesting pediatric factoid or historical item that you probably didn't know and might not believe. I have tons of these things jamming up my brain, and I'd like to share some with you. So let's get started. Pediatric Fun Facts. Many of you may know that newborn babies can get jaundiced or yellow in the first few days of life. When the level of jaundice gets high enough, babies are put under special lights that help the body excrete the bilirubin and let the level of jaundice drop. But do you know who figured this out and how it happened? Well, let me tell you. We owe a great debt of gratitude to Sister Ward. Sister Jean Ward was a nun and a nurse who worked at Rockford General Hospital in Rockford, Essex in the UK during the 1950s. She liked to take some of the more frail premature infants for constitutionals, where she took them out of the stuffy atmosphere of the nursery and would go for long walks with a large pram full of babies. In 1956, during a ward round, the pediatrician saw a preterm infant who looked pale yellow, except for a strongly demarcated triangle of skin, very much yellower than the rest of the body. When asked about this, the sister explained that this was a jaundiced baby who had been exposed to sunlight. A corner of the sheet had covered an area of the baby's skin, and it was, as the sister noted, the rest of the body that seemed to have faded. When the pediatricians realized the connection, the association between light exposure and bilirubin was studied. As it turns out, you don't need full spectrum light to get rid of jaundice. What researchers later figured out was that the wavelength from the blue spectrum 
from about 400 to 520 nanometers change the shape of the bilirubin molecule. Exposure to this spectrum of light makes bilirubin go from being fat-soluble to being water-soluble. And as a result, it's much more easily excreted in the urine and stool. So now at the hospital, and sometimes even at home, if a baby starts to get too jaundice, that level is treated by exposure to this light. That's really cool. And we owe it all to Sister Jean Ward. And now on to the show. My guest today completed dental school at SUNY Buffalo, where he was awarded Most Outstanding Potential in Pediatric Dentistry. He went on to earn his advanced education in general dentistry at the University of New Mexico. He then returned to New York to complete two additional years of pediatric training at the Women and Children's Hospital in Buffalo. He then came out to the West Coast and worked for three years at one of the most successful and demanding pediatric dental offices in the area. A few years ago, he fulfilled his dream by opening his own office, Iron Horse Pediatric Dentistry in Danville. And that is where we are today. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Josh Twiss. Well, thanks for coming on the show today, Josh. Um, I just took a wonderful tour of your office and it is an impressive place. So uh, let's get down to business and start talking about pediatric dentistry. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks for being here. So first thing just to talk about, um, I think I like to start with babies because we'll go chronologically. And so our first topic for you is when is the appropriate age to bring your child into the dentist for the first time? Okay, that's a great question. We get that question a lot. And it's also a question that a lot of parents don't know the answer to. So the actual time to bring your child in for the first visit is six months after the eruption of the first baby tooth, which usually happens around six or seven months old. So it's right around the first birthday is the ideal time to bring a child in. And what happens at that first visit? Right. Good, expect? Yeah. So first visit with a one-year-old, we don't expect them to... Uh, we don't tickle them under the left arm and they open their mouth and we have some magic way. <laughs> you wish. Yeah. So we have a little private room that we go into and we actually have an opportunity to have one-on-one -on -one time with the parents and the child because a lot of that first visit is actually for the parents to make sure they are confident in how they're taking care of their child and that they can have all their questions answered. Um, we do a little knee-to-knee -knee exam on a, on a pad and we show them how to brush their child's teeth and we answer questions and we can apply fluoride varnish and, um, and all that can be done in a, in a very reasonable amount of time. So we try to make it as a good of an experience as possible for the kids. So you're already applying a fluoride varnish to a child right at the first visit there? Yes, yes, yes. We'll do that, especially if we see signs of early stage decay or, or breakdown of the teeth, then we definitely will. Um, and it's so, so easy to do now, um, that it's, it's, it you just, don't have teeny little trays. To no, fit in we don't. Like we don't. We had, when we, we don't. Were kids. Yeah, exactly. We don't have the gel and the, and the straw between the styrofoam tray that you have to hold in your mouth for four minutes. It's actually can be applied within two or three seconds and it's really tacky and it sticks to the teeth and, and, uh, it's much easier. And what should parents be doing for preventative care and when should they start that? babies or children when their first teeth come in. Okay. So parents should be brushing their children's teeth as the teeth are growing in, um, or at least once those teeth have popped through the gums to be brushing twice a day is ideal. Now brushing for two minutes when you only have three teeth doesn't make a whole lot of sense and is a little unnecessary. So 
we try to teach the parents that, you know, it's really quality and not necessarily how long you're brushing with your infant's teeth. Um, once they're, once they're in there, you know, 30 seconds is fantastic if you can get all the surfaces. And is there a proper technique for how to brush a baby's teeth? Sure. Yep. There actually is. And we'll, we teach that, but it's kind of a little circular motions. Um, you want to make sure you're using a soft bristle brush and you're doing a gentle circular motion and that's pretty much it. And how about there's different types of brushes available. Do you recommend just getting like a little baby brush or they, I've seen the banana things right. and finger toothbrushes and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So in the very, very beginning, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you're using to brush their teeth. You can use a little finger swipes when the teeth are brand new, but you definitely want to basically use a soft bristle brush with a small head that you can fit in their mouth that you can kind of get around to all the surfaces. doesn't matter which brand or what it is, just soft bristle brush. Um, and, and you can use toothpaste right away. Um, you just want to use, you know, size of a, a rice grain um, of toothpaste on that toothbrush. So whether that's a fluoridated toothpaste or not, because you're using a small amount, you're not having to exactly. worry about Exactly. As long as it's measured, then we know that kids swallow their toothpaste. I have a six-year-old who still has trouble spitting in the, in the sink. And so, uh, you know, I know she's consuming part of her toothpaste still too. Something that I get asked about from time to time that is in a lot of the, you know, what to expect in the first year kind of books that I've never understood is there are recommendations for parents to begin brushing a baby's gums is, can you speak to that? Because yeah, I'm at a yeah, loss. Yeah. So in school, we learned that bacteria can hide in all different places. It can hide in the furrows of the tongue. It can hide uh, even on the gums. And so you can start brushing their teeth and brushing their tongue before the teeth even come in. Now, children aren't necessarily born with the bacteria that cause decay, tooth decay. So if, you're, if the teeth haven't come in yet, it's not absolutely necessary for you to be doing that extra brushing around the gums and the tongue. Um, but, but that's the thought process behind why someone would brush. So you're trying to decrease bacterial colonization in the mouth even yes. before the teeth come in. Yes. Okay. I always thought it was more like getting the baby used to having something in their mouth and manipulated about. Well, the truth is that's probably more of what's being done. Okay. Um, and I think that that's probably why most people will do it is just so that they can get used to having that brush. And when you put a brush in a baby's mouth, what they're going to do is they're going to chew on it. They're yeah. going to close their mouth. And that's kind of a natural reaction to having something introduced to their mouth. And so we always tell parents, you know, be patient with them. Know that this is a reflex. They're going to close down on the brush and they're going to want to chew on the brush. And those are all normal things. Mm -hmm. And we, we recommend um, supervised brushing, which is basically you give the child an opportunity to do whatever they're going to do with the brush, whether it's chew on it, brush with it, whatever, and then mommy or daddy always gets an opportunity after the child does their attempt. Sure. Okay. And you said twice a day, right from the beginning. So yes, right, right when from they, the beginning. So morning and evening-ish. Yep. Does it matter? Do you, ha you don't have to brush your child's teeth after you nurse them at bedtime. Is that the well, expected so, thing? Right. So ideally, you want to just make sure there's no food. Once they're on solid foods, you want to mm -hmm. make sure there's no food on their teeth at night when they go to bed. Um, now, milk or breast milk or cow's milk or whatever milk you're giving them, um, if that is on the teeth, it will mm -hmm. create a film on the teeth. And so the food can attach to that uh, milky film and it just holds those carbs right there. And sure. that's generally how you can get decay starting. And so if you're going to be breastfeeding at night or bottle feeding before bed, you have to make sure that there's absolutely no 
uh, carbs left in the mouth. So the idea is after you have a dinner, if they're eating solids for dinner, you'd brush their teeth then. So then when you either nurse them or gave them a bottle, there would be less adhering to the teeth. Exactly. Okay, great. Okay. So, and then as we move up towards uh, toddlers and older kids, any uh, differences you see as far as what to expect with a pediatric dental visit in the office? Sure. So once you get to be a toddler, let's say you're three or four years old, well, you're not going to be laying down on a little squishy pad and going knee to knee with me in a little room. You're going to be out in an open room where you can see other kids that are getting their teeth cleaned and you can see, they can see their siblings get their teeth cleaned and see that it's safe and that they can have a good time doing it. Um, we also do a lot of education about injuries during that age because we have kids that, you know, basically once they come out of their, their mom's wombs, they're falling left and right. And there's, yes, they do that. Yes. And there are certain activities that are more likely to, to result in injuries. And so we'll kind of coach parents through that. But as far as the dental care itself goes, um, there's not a lot of differences except for now their teeth would be touching and we'd introduce flossing and we teach them how to do that. And, and we want to do that at least once a day and nighttime is the best time to do that. After they've finished eating all their food. Exactly. So what age would you recommend starting flossing? Like as, soon as, as, as soon as the teeth are touching. So okay. we have some children whose teeth are touching at one and a half and mm -hmm. we have other kids whose teeth aren't touching until you know five or six so the kids with the widely spaced contacts that you really can see a gap yes less crucial exactly okay. a toothbrush will reach all those surfaces okay. great any particular type of toothbrush for an older kid do you discourage or encourage more of the electric types right so an electric toothbrush can do more work in less time and so but the the key is the brush has to be engaging the teeth so a lot of times we'll see, yeah, so we'll see a lot of times, um, I'll recommend to parents who ask me that question, I'll say, why don't you go get the Spider-Man toothbrush from Target for $6 mm -hmm. and see if they will use it and see that and, and coach them and teach them how to use it before you invest in a hundred dollar toothbrush. Sure. Because if it's just skipping along the surfaces of the teeth and missing teeth because of the vibration and they don't like the way that feels, um, you can do a much better job with a manual toothbrush. Okay. Um, but it does help with the transition to the dental office cleaning because when we use our tools, they're very much similar to an electric toothbrush. So they have so, that buzz quality. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a, it does help with that transition. Great. And moving further along now when you get to school age kids, other issues? Um, other things that can come up once they're in school. Well, once they're in school, it's more of, issues related to erupting permanent teeth mm -hmm. and losing baby teeth. And, and a lot of times we'll have injuries where baby teeth that are about to fall out on their own will get knocked out and we'll get calls and, and then we'll kind of talk through the situation and realize that it's a baby tooth that was about to fall out anyway. But so not, yeah, not a big deal. Yeah, not a big deal. But those are the biggest things. Once we start school age, then we're really looking at growth and development. We're looking at you know, preparing for orthodontics if they're necessary and making sure that the teeth that are coming in are coming in properly, that the, that the quality of the enamel is appropriate, um, different things like that. And so back to the orthodontic issue, do you do like initial screening yourself in the office to kind of see who needs to get referred off to Absolute, the orthodontist and when? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So usually we, we do, um, once the upper four front teeth or permanent front teeth have erupted and the lower four so those front eight teeth yep. once those are in then we take a panoramic image which is an, an 
x-ray that goes all the way around the head and it shows us what teeth are still have are developing under the surface we check to make sure there's no pathology in the jaws but we also make sure that the teeth that are coming in are coming in uh, straight Mm-hmm. And we can see a lot of that stuff ahead of time. So like they're not crowded. Exactly. There's we room can, for them to yeah, come in. Yeah, we can tell all that stuff from a clinical exam and from that x-ray. So that's usually around age eight. And so if we're making an early referral to an orthodontist, that would be at age eight. And it would be because there's some kind of uh, jaw discrepancy. Um, so need to maybe get early evaluation for expansion. Exactly. Make that mouth bigger. Yes, yep. exactly. Okay, Good. And, um, but not all kids necessarily need that? No, not all kids. And so sometimes we'll take that panoramic x-ray at age eight and everything looks perfect and it looks straight and their back molars line up and their canines line up and it looks like there's plenty of room. And we'll tell the parents, let's just let the rest of the adult teeth come in and we'll reevaluate for orthodontics at age 12 or 13 when we have a full set of adult teeth. Okay, great. And as we move on toward the teenage years, other issues? Yeah, with teenagers, it's motivation. A sure. lot of times, um, you know, sometimes we'll get two or three words out of a teenager when they come in for their cleaning, which is funny, but we usually will have a good relationship with them. And so sometimes they'll talk to us more than they'll talk to their parents. Okay. So uh, w- when we, you know, this is times where where children have their braces on and, and we're really trying to emphasize their hygiene and make sure they take care of themselves so that they're not causing more problems by having their braces on. Sure. Um, but yes, that's the biggest thing for that age group is... You now have all of your adult teeth. We're trying to make sure that they set themselves up for a, a lifetime of, of not having dental issues. And so we're really emphasizing hygiene. And they're um, pretty independent at that point. Exactly. As as exactly. Their mom and dad's yeah, moms and dads are not anymore. brushing their teeth anymore. Yeah. And so there's a lot of that coaching and motivation and, um, that we do with the, the older kids. So you mentioned early on when we were talking that you have a special room for infants, but your whole office is set up kind of chronologically here. And so a couple questions kind of come up. One, the kind of leading question is, is what is different about going to a pediatric dentist versus a family dentist? And then two, if you could go into a little bit of detail while you're answering that question about specifically how your office is set up, because it is definitely something that is unique and special and definitely uh, captured my attention just from the minute I walked in. Oh, thank you. Um, Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, we were all general dentists before we were specialists. And so we all uh, had the same training to become a general dentist first. And in a general dentist's office, you have to be able to take care of uh, just about anything that walks through the door. And that's whether it's a geriatric patient Mm -hmm. or, or a pediatric patient or a parent or whoever. And so those offices won't necessarily be set up um, geared towards a child feeling safe and feeling comfortable. That's one thing that we really emphasized in our office was, you know, we we had the opportunity to build it from scratch and say, hey, how do we want to make this place feel? And even down to the colors of the cabinets and the colors of the walls and the different things that we put in this office, we've, we've really made it a place where kids feel safe. And chronologically speaking, we have different rooms for different age groups. And so we have kind of an under three room, and then we have kind of an opener area for the three to 10 year olds. And then we have a teen area for the kids where they can, they can watch a different movie than frozen, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, with a three-year-old next to them, uh, they can lift, listen to different music. It's just a different vibe in there. 
And then we have our treatment rooms, which are also different. Um, and you were describing when you were giving me the tour that like details down to like literally how the chair is positioned in the room and how it's facing the door. Yes. So that person in the chair doesn't feel like they're being yep. in any way surprised yep. or yep. come up behind. Yep. So I've found in pediatrics that one of the most important things working on with kids and working on kids is to make sure that they feel safe. And one of the things that we figured figured out over time was, you know, even just how we set the, the room up, that they can see who's approaching them, that nobody sneaks up on them, that nothing's hanging off the chair the way we've designed the room it's the chairs stand alone and then all the equipment comes off of the wall so they don't feel like they're sitting under an octopus arm mm -hmm. or something when they when they sit in the chair so we've tried to we've tried really hard to think of all of the little details that could make it a better experience for the kids yeah and it really shows when you walk in here i mean it's just set up to be that way so i'm sure your patients have had very positive experiences. I know I've heard back from my patients that I've sent to you that they have. So oh, I appreciate great. that. Um, and so when procedures have to happen, when there's the occasional, whether it's a, a cavity being filled or um, something else, is there a certain technique or a way you go about this with kids that might be different sure. than how a family dentist? Yes. Yes. So exactly. So we, we try to do everything we can to make it um, as painless as possible. So that goes to, you know, the way the room's set up. We have a TV on the ceiling. We use nitrous oxide a lot of times, which helps with patients not seeing any of the, you know, if we're going to use a local infiltration, if we're going to use a, a needle to get them numb, we don't show that to them. And we mm -hmm. also use a computerized injector that doesn't look anything like a traditional dental syringe. So that helps a lot, and it administers the anesthetic very slowly so that you don't really feel it. Um, and we pre-treat our anesthetic so that it doesn't burn at all. And I've personally had this done when I had a procedure done by my dentist several years ago with that computerized, and it it's a huge difference. It, yeah. it's I've had my share of Novocaine in the past, and you feel like your jaw's about to blow up. Yeah. And it's it's a completely different experience, so I'm sure that kids appreciate that. Yeah, so we just we just try to think of everything. Anything that is out there, we've pretty much adopted it into our practice to make it easier for the kids. Great. Let's talk a little bit about, um, in the event of need for procedures, um, when, when do you resort to using sedation, and if so, what kind of sedation... Um, do you usually implement and what are the different types and levels? Okay, great. So, you know, when we have to do dental treatment on little children and, and we'll start doing fillings on them as early as three years old, depending on the situation. Well, some three-year-olds will cooperate perfectly and they'll do an incredible job. Sometimes they won't open their mouth and, and that's part of life. And, and so we have to figure out case by case, what is the appropriate approach for each child? And so we don't just say, well, if you're under four and you have a cavity, you're getting sedated. It's yep. not, that's not the case. We try to do anything we can stand on our head, whatever, to do the treatment without sedation, if we can avoid it. But there are times where sedation is necessary in order to, to perform a, a procedure safely. And so there are basically three levels of sedation. There's nitrous oxide, which is when you have a cooperative child who just may be slightly nervous. 
a little bit of anxiety, but they're willing to participate and they'll lay down and they'll breathe through their nose with a little rubber nose on top of their nose that's delivering the nitrous oxide. Um, that is the lowest level of sedation that we offer. And we typically will do that for the majority of our patients because we're giving them injections and doing treatment in their, mm -hmm. in their mouth. Um, if we have somebody who has just a little bit of work that they need done and they have a little bit more than, than mild anxiety, then we have an oral sedation option. And that's where you give them some a medication by mouth. That's a drink. And we typically will use midazolam or Versed. Mm -hmm. um, and then that patient will have 45 minutes where they are conscious, awake, um, but they don't really remember what goes on for 45 minutes. Yeah. And so we have to be very selective on who we choose to use that for. It's inappropriate to try to do a full mouth of dentistry with that level of sedation, which unfortunately has been uh, done many times. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we're really careful to select who that's appropriate for. Um, if we have somebody who has just a tremendous amount of work that they need or they're, they're young, too young or they have special needs um, and there's just no way to safely approach treatment, um, not safe for the patient, not safe for me, not safe for the staff, then we have to consider sometimes bringing in an anesthesiologist. And if we do that, we use the best of the best. We use the people who have their MD anesthesiologists, who have fellowships and peds, who have this is right in their down their alley, and um, it's the easiest thing they've done all week is to come see our healthy kids, yeah. um, because those are the same anesthesiologists who are working on the babies in the NICU at the hospital. Yep. Or and yeah. so they come right to your office. They have the whole They'll setup come. here. Yes, it's really pretty amazing actually, because you don't have to be here three hours early for your appointment like you do at the hospital. Sure. Um, and, and you basically can be there, um, in recovery the entire time and, and you leave about 30 minutes after the procedures are done. Great. And so they, it's a controlled setting with a board certified anesthesiologist yes. and really is as low risk as possible for that kind of. Yes. And we, of and, and we do try to minimize that, but there are times where there's no, no avoiding. Yeah. It. A kid that doesn't understand or is super anxious or a special needs kid that has communication issues and. That's exactly. going to happen. Yep. Okay. And um, let's shift gears a little bit. And I have a couple other questions sort of more about prevention. Um, one is fluoride. I know in the area we live in here, there's fluoride in the water. Um, there are some outlying areas around here where there's not fluoride. And is what is the current recommendation as far as when kids should get supplemental fluoride drops or chewables and if you just kind yeah, of give yeah. the answer to that, depending on where people are listening from. Right, exactly. So there's two different types of fluoride that you can get. There's topical fluoride, which you would get from toothpaste or from a dental visit, where we actually apply the, the fluoride directly to the teeth. And that topical fluoride is for the teeth that are in the mouth. Mm -hmm. That strengthens the enamel of, that, of those teeth. Um, and then there's systemic fluoride. And systemic fluoride is something that you would get from your water source if you're in a community that that has fluoride in the water like we have here in, in our county. Um, I also work in Central Valley and in the Central Valley where the decay rate is much higher, uh, which I see every week, um, there, is, there is no fluoride out there. So we supplement um, by chewable tablets or drops um, for those children and it's a measured amount so that it's safe for them. Um, up to age nine, because the only teeth that are still developing after age nine are the wisdom teeth. And Who we needs them? Exactly. <laughs> and most people don't have room for those. And yeah. so we don't really care 
how strong the enamel is on those teeth. But the systemic fluoride is helping to um, strengthen the developing enamel on the on the permanent developing teeth. And so and we start that right away. Yeah. And so that started right from birth? Once they're in for their first visit. Yeah. Oh, so for you, it would be at a year. Yes. Okay. Now, would pediatricians prescribe that earlier? Possibly. And we have some, we have some pediatricians who have already recommended fluoride treatments or fluoride uh, drops mm -hmm. before the patient's ever seen us. Yeah. And because typically they'll see their pediatrician first before they come see us. Something I don't see. I know that the surrounding area, Livermore, I don't think has fluoride in the water right, here. Correct. But um, most of the other areas closer to here do. So I don't have to think about it too mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. And then as far as one issue that does come up sometimes is when parents choose to bottle feed their baby, sometimes they'll use like the bottled water. And if they're using bottled water that doesn't have fluoride, then they're not giving the baby the advantage of that. I know you can get five gallon bottles, wa bottles of water with fluoride in it, but you have to ask for it. Exactly. Yeah. Most fluoride, most, uh, most water bottles don't have fluoride yeah. in the They've, they've taken that out. And so if, if you're, we'll ask the parents when they come in and if they are bottle feeding, we'll say, you know, what is the source of the water? And if it is bottles, then we'll just inform them that they're probably not getting any of the fluoridated water. You know, we do get a halo effect of fluoride in our community because it's in our water. So when you go to a restaurant, your food's been cooked in it. And, yep. you know, so you do get little bits here and there, but um, not enough that's, uh, that would be the ideal amount to sure. strengthen the enamel. And yep. so that's why uh, we'll inform the parents. And we do have parents sometimes that, that have objections to fluoride and that's a discussion that we have and it doesn't preclude them from being able to come to the, to the office. But sure. we just inform them that if you're not going to take this um, as a, as a supplement or in your water supply that you are that much more responsible for home care and hygiene sure. and diet and all of that because the child will be have a higher risk of getting to care. Sure. So more emphasis on cleaning right. and hygiene and flossing. Sure. Okay. Um, shift gears again. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, dental trauma. Okay. So more of the what if, whether we're talking about a toddler who's learning to walk and takes a face plant or a soccer player who gets an elbow in the face. Uh, what to do when teeth are chipped or cracked or loose, what should a parent look for and when should they seek out more urgent or emergent dental care? Okay, that's a great question. So we probably have injuries every week, I'd say. Someone calls in and said their their toddler or their teenager or, or someone fell and hit their mouth or hit their tooth and, and they had an injury. Well, starting at as soon as you have a tooth, you can damage a tooth. Sure. And so um, a lot of times we'll have children who fall as they're learning to walk and they'll, or they'll hit their mouth on the side of the bathtub. And sometimes it'll knock the tooth out or knock the tooth completely out, or it will knock the tooth so loose that it's dangling and it becomes a, an aspiration risk. We're worried about that tooth coming out or in the, in their sleep. Mm -hmm. And so, so we need to see those patients. And so a lot of times this is a case by case situation where a parent will call us and say an injury happened and we'll say, you know, describe it or send us a picture of it. And then we'll kind of troubleshoot it or, or have them come in. And sometimes that's after hours and that's just the way it works. It's part of, part of our job description yep. here. And so truly a true dental emergency would be an adult tooth that was either knocked completely out 
or was fractured to where the nerve is exposed, where you can see bleeding from inside the tooth, not from around the gums, but from, from inside the tooth, um, or if a tooth is knocked into a position where the child cannot close their mouth. So those three things are where I will get out of bed at any time of night and come in and, and meet you at the office. Um, everything else can pretty much be managed by phone until the next morning. Um, but again, don't hesitate to call. Those are the things that we, we pride ourselves on being available to help with those emergencies. And if the uh, worst case happens, you have an adult tooth that's knocked all the way out, what to do as a parent yes. or as the baseball coach or yeah, whoever's standing there and totally. sees this happen? So when that happens, you there's a couple things you want to keep in mind. So if a tooth is knocked completely out, it could be landing in dirt. It could be landing on the grass. You have to find it. So that's sure. the first thing. You want to find the tooth. And if you find the tooth, then you want to pick it up by the crown of the tooth, which is the part of the tooth that you can see in the mouth. So not by the root. Uh, the root hat is full of fibers and cells that are necessary to... Um, try to stay alive if we're going to re-implant that tooth. And if you're nowhere near the dental office, say you're at a, a softball tournament and you're far away and you have something like this happen, call us because I'll coach you through how to do it from a distance Sure. Um, so that we have a chance of saving that tooth. Because there are times when, especially when the teeth are young, that you can save a tooth without needing a root canal or any type of special treatment by just getting that tooth back in there. And this is a time, this is a situation where minutes to hours are yes. a huge difference. Yep. The difference between getting it back in in a few minutes versus waiting three hours to exactly. get to you. Yes. Yeah. And so if you had to store it in something, you can store it in saliva or you can store it in milk. And those are two options that are better than just storing it in plain water. So you'd have the person spit in a cup and just throw exactly. it in there? Exactly. Uh, or put in a little bit of milk. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how about um, the order of events? Because this happens. Um, someone takes a header off the bike and gets cut on the face and their teeth are also fairly traumatized. Order of visits, should it be dentist first, then pediatrician or family doctor or vice versa? Okay, so I would say the first thing would be was there a loss of consciousness? Because if there was a loss of consciousness, then your first visit's the ER. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. But yeah. say it's just a scrapes and bruises and sure. maybe a laceration, okay. and there's not really concern over... So you know, typically we like to see you at the dental office first before you see your pediatrician. And mostly that's because a lot of the injury will be caused... Um, well, soft tissue can be, can be fixed up a little bit later. Um, if there's an urgent dental situation, we like to get that taken care of. And sometimes in the process of fixing the dental situation, we find out that there's fragments of tooth that are actually in the soft tissue embedded in the lips, yes. which has happened many seen times. seen those x-rays. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And so um, for those reasons, a lot of times um, we'll, we'd prefer to see them first at the dentist and then and then we'll send them over to the pediatrician. Yeah, I think that's usually my preference too because lacerations can be fixed an hour or two later. Yeah else okay great well any uh last points or things you want to bring up and talk about you know i i don't i just appreciate you coming over here today and to see in my office and spending well, this pleasure. time and you know it's an honor to be involved in your podcast i think this is such a great idea well, for so you. many parents i'm that, having a good time with it that are 
I mean, I'm learning. I, I listened to a few of the podcasts uh, earlier, and, and I'm learning things. So this well, is fantastic stuff. And, you know, when I talk to people every time I interview, whether it's a dentist or another specialist, I generally pick up a couple of information pearls myself. So this is great. So um, thanks for having me over to your office and showing me around. It really is a special place. Can you uh, tell the listeners if they want to hear more from you or find you or come see you, how that might happen? Sure. So the best way to prob- would probably be just to look us up online. It's www.ironhorsekids.com. Uh, or you can Google us and just read the reviews and you can kind of get a better and the idea. the reviews are great, I can tell you now. Uh, thank you. So that's probably the best way to get an idea for what you can expect when you come here. Right. It's a great website too. I've checked it out. A lot of, lot of information in there and very informative. Thank so you. Uh, thanks for taking the time, Dr. Josh, and uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. All right. Thank you, Dr. Nash. All right. And now let's take a brief break. When we return... We'll answer some questions from listeners. And we're back. Before we proceed with the next segments, I want to let the listeners know about our phone-in line, which has been set up for people to call in and leave voicemail questions to be answered on the show. In addition, if you'd like to contribute to our new segment, Parenting Horror Stories, you can also use this number. The call-in number is 925-732-6274. Call in with your question or horror story for the show. You can also contact us on Facebook at The Owner's Manual Podcast, where you can leave comments, post questions and stories, or even idea topics for the show. Whichever way you prefer, we can't wait to hear from you. This week, in response to listeners' suggestions to add a bit more humor and levity to the owner's manual, we are adding Parenting Horror Stories as a weekly segment. I'm calling on parents to call in with funny stories or anecdotes about things that happen when trying to parent. It might be a story that describes your less-than-greatest moment as a parent, or possibly just something funny or endearing that your child did. You don't have to identify yourself you're embarrassed or you can make up a funny pseudonym if you'd like so here it is parenting horror stories hi dr nash this is amy from danville calling and i have a horrific parenting story to share with you when my second daughter was four months old i had an older daughter who was three years old and had to take her to preschool one morning i had waited to feed my four-month-old breastfeed her because I was, you know, running errands and getting my daughter off to school. So I get back to the house and I'm kind of engorged and the baby's super hungry and cranky. But when I get back to the house, uh, there's all these people on my doorstep. Um, I forgot the maids were coming and I had a wallpaper person there and I had an air conditioning guy who was back for the third day to try to fix our air conditioning. I had to put the baby in the playpen and direct people to all their locations where they need to work in my house. And my mom kept calling. So finally I decided I'd go into the office, sit down to breastfeed, and take a phone call from my mom. So I sit down at the desk, I close the doors, I start to breastfeed, and I look down, and my baby's actually choking because I was so engorged and it's just coming out way too fast. And I hang up on my mom, and I 
pull my breath out of her mouth. And right when I do that, the double doors open, and it's the air conditioning guy who's in his 20s. And he, he's like, I found out what was wrong with the air conditioner. And my breast milk shoots across the room in an arc about 10 feet and hits him in the face. <laughs> it was horrible. Anyways, he was so apologetic and backed out of the room, closed the doors. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, this is too much. Anyways, I'm sure it's imprinted on his mind as much as it has, you know, seeing that it's 18 years later, but hope you enjoy. Bye. Oh, that is a horror story. Thanks for sharing that, Amy. And if you have any more, or if any of the listeners want to share, call 925-732-6274 and leave your recording of your story. And now for the phone-in questions. Here's our first question. Hi, my name's Elise Maltratter from Danville, and I was curious, why does my two-year-old insist on putting everything in his mouth? Is it a developmental thing? Is it a my child thing? That's my question. Thank you. Thanks for calling, Elise. While some kids are more oral than others, Exploring things with their mouth is a very common behavior. All babies will grab things and put them in their mouth as soon as they can, usually about five to six months. This usually makes them very happy. They enjoy chewing on things and exploring the texture, shape, and even the taste of an object with their mouths. As most kids get older, they use their mouth for other things, mainly talking and eating, but some toddlers will remain very oral and put almost everything they get their hands on in their mouth. While this is totally normal, it can create some safety concerns. Objects that are choking hazards, such as coins, Lego, buttons, etc., need to be kept away from little hands. But also certain objects may have toxins in them. Things with lead paint or splinters can be a risk. Electrical cords can result in electrical burns. Medications, pills, vitamins, and such will go right in the mouth if a toddler gets hold of them. Now, some kids will outgrow this tendency by age two, but others take until three or even longer before they lose that urge to explore things with their mouth. It's normal to have this continue for longer, but you need to know your child's behaviors so you can keep them safe. I hope that answers your question. And now for our next question. Hi, this message is for... Dr. Nash. Uh, This is Catherine from Texas. I was interested in getting more information about the HPV shot um, for my twin son, who just turned 12. I wanted to see um, if there are any additional pros and cons um, to it that are different from a female um, getting their shot. Uh, Thank you. Thanks for calling, Catherine. HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection in the U.S. Of the hundred or so different strains of this virus, 40 can be transmitted by sexual contact of some type. In general, HPV is thought to be responsible for more than 90% of anal and cervical cancers, about 70% of vaginal and vulvar cancers, and 60% of penile cancers. Yes, cancer of the penis is actually a thing, albeit rare. In addition, HPV causes about 70% of cancers of the back of the throat and the base of the tongue. These cancers are real-life things and affect people in real, tangible ways every day, 
In fact, one of my dear friends is currently battling throat cancer from a tumor that was caused by HPV. Now let's talk about the HPV vaccine. The brand currently used is called Gardasil 9. It's called that because it provides protection from the nine most common strains of HPV, or human papillomavirus. We have a safe and effective vaccine that can reduce an individual's risk of getting these types of cancer by upwards of 90%. That's huge. That's a meaningful, real-life reduction in risk that is available at your local pediatrician's office. If there was a vaccine that could reduce the risk of your child developing something like heart disease by 90%, most people wouldn't hesitate for a second. Well, we don't have a vaccine for that now, but we do have Gardasil 9. If started before age 15, the HPV vaccine is a two-dose series, given six to 12 months apart usually. If started after age 15, it's a three-dose series given over a six-month period. Common side effects include soreness at the injection site for a day or two, low-grade fevers are rare, and despite what you might read on rogue websites or chat rooms, there really haven't been any studies that show any kind of common association with the HPV vaccine and any kind of serious neurologic side effect or condition. Of course, the conspiracy theorists and anti-vaccine lobby will always question vaccines and think that agencies like the CDC or the American Academy of Pediatrics are for some reason trying to harm the children of this country, but that's just not true. There are some very rare side effects associated with the HPV vaccine, as there are with any vaccine, but we're talking about one to two cases per million injections. Really rare stuff. As a scientist at heart, I believe in the dozens of studies that demonstrate that since the introduction of the HPV vaccine, the prevalence of HPV infections, as well as the incidence of the horrible associated cancers, has decreased substantially. And with increased vaccination rates and time, that benefit will only grow. Here's another thing to keep in mind when you're trying to make a decision regarding your child and preventing them from this STI. In discussing the vaccine in my office, some parents present to me that their child has been taught a certain set of values at home that will result in them leading a monogamous life. And that's great, and I'm all for that. But what people need to realize is that when their child chooses their eventual life partner, that person might not have taken the same path prior to meeting your child, and really that person's prior choices and sexual history then becomes that of your child. So no matter what kind of family values you have or teach, your child still needs to be protected. And that's our show for today. I'd really like to thank Dr. Josh Twist for showing me around his amazing office and taking time to talk to me about pediatric dental issues. I think that this information will give parents a head start on keeping up with their child's oral hygiene. In addition, the discussion about why a pediatric dentist might be the right choice for your child can prepare parents about what to expect at the first visit and help establish a happy long-term relationship between your child and their dentist. So until next time, this is your host, Drew Nash, wishing you and your child dental health and happy parenting. The opinions and beliefs expressed on the owner's manual are that of myself, Dr. Nash, and my guests, and do not necessarily represent those of sponsors or other governing boards. The owner's manual is recorded and produced at Neutron Sound, Danville, California. The content of the owner's manual is the intellectual property of Andrew L. Nash, MD, and One to One Pediatrics, Incorporated. 
Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.